Lord willing, we'll be speaking from Psalm 52 tonight. Uh, picking through the Psalms, and we hope that you'll be there for that Psalm. Luke 13 is where we are this morning. We dipped into this chapter last time. In the first nine verses. But our comments are going to begin in verse one. We'll just touch those nine verses again uh, before we move forward uh, in our chapter. So I call your attention to Luke 9, or Luke 13, I'm sorry. And we'll start reading in verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him, that's Jesus, of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Atrocities by government people are not new. Jesus answered and said to them, Suppose ye, or think ye, that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen, upon whom the tower of Siloam fell, and killed them, think ye they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Now that was an atrocity, that was a tragedy, right? That was what we would call an accident. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And he spoke also this parable, and this parable actually deals with repentance, even though it doesn't mention it. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit on it and found none. The fruit there is the fruit John the Baptist mentioned, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth the ground? And he answered and said to him, Lord, let it alone this year also. I shall dig about it and fertilize it. Dig it and dung it, is the way some Bibles translate it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Here's new material. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity. Eighteen years. And was bowed together and could in no way lift herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him. And said unto her, Woman... Thou art loosed from thy infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said to the people, There are six days in which men ought to work in them. Therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, 
Thus doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. So the lead ruler of the synagogue was one among many that thought what Jesus was doing was inappropriate. He spoke up, but the others amended what he was doing. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So the people were reminded that Jesus does a lot of things besides this, and we got, just got to see one. Then, and it really the text is, therefore. So verse 18 and following is definitely connected with what goes before, grammatically. Therefore he said, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and became a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, leaven is yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Father, help us as we uh, wait upon you this morning. Help me to speak and each of us to hear. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Uh, hopefully this text will help prepare us for the ta- observing the table of the Lord. And uh, when, we, when you meditate on chapter 13, this first half, we have to make an observation how similar things were 2,000 years ago than they are today. We have a lot of things they didn't have. They didn't have computers and cars and airplanes. But life, the real problems of life are about the same. We have atrocities and tragedies like verses 1 to 5. We've got a boatload of those in the world right now. We have privileged people who remained spiritual fruitless after years of great advantage, like verse 6 to 9, just like they did. We have people with physical ailments that cramp and crush their normal living, like that poor Jewish woman who spent 18 years bent over and unable to walk upright. we have spiritual leaders stuck in unbiblical thinking that's harmful to themselves and others who are very critical of the proper kind of thinking Jesus is exhibiting here. We have Christian ministries that seem like they're not accomplishing anything much in comparison with other activities of non-Christians not involved of ministry and yet they are spiritually significant and historically significant like the mustard seed and the leaven. You don't have to make the front page to be doing something important. You don't. 
The only time Athens Bible Church ever made the front page was when we were, before we had this land and building, we met uh, in Athens and we rented an old church building and it caught on fire right after we rented it. <laughs> the fire trucks came. Lynn and I missed that fire by just a half hour or so. We were in the building, we got out, it was an electrical wiring thing. The fire trucks came and hit, hit it with hoses in the, in the bell tower and all that, and it made the front page of Athens newspaper. We've never made the front page since. And the only time ministries make the front page is usually when there's a disaster or a scandal. Otherwise, the world does its best to ignore what we're doing. So Jesus, this old mustard seed and this uh, uh, leaven thing shows that you can do ministry quietly and spend your life doing it and nobody recognizes you and yet the great things that are being done are being done by God's people. Not necessarily things that make the headlines. Now, as we move through this section, though, and if we go back uh, through it, uh, there's some very interesting things about uh, uh, how intense the Lord Jesus was in ministry. There was an intensity about him that I can't keep up with. Uh, in verses 1 to 9, we see he had a ministry of traveling and while traveling. He had, while he traveled, he had spiritual conversation. Uh, I'm thinking about Mike and Marie Brunk who used to travel with me up to New Philadelphia. We were starting a church up there and a lot of my discipleship of them was in the car on the way up and on the way back. Two and a half hours up, two and a half hours back on a Sunday afternoon. So we, I didn't just preach when I got there. I was ministering on the way and on the way back. And here, Jesus is, is ministering on the go. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. He's only got months left at most to live. But he's ministering on the road. And then we have the synagogue ministry uh, he had a ministry while worshiping. He had a ministry while traveling. He had a ministry while worshiping. And this is the last time we see Jesus in a synagogue. He's had a synagogue ministry regularly. But this is the last time. You know, people went to the temple to worship. But the synagogue was a place to learn. And they would sing. I've been in synagogue ruins in the Holy Land. I've been in, there's the thing in Nazareth where there's a synagogue built. On, it's, not, it's not an old one. It's just one they built to show you what they were like. And we've been in it. And it's not much bigger than this room. And some of the synagogues were bigger. But in the smaller towns, they were just like a little Methodist church probably in size in a little town. 
And Jesus had a synagogue ministry. But verses 10 to 17 is the last time, if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and do a chronological study, this is the last time you see Jesus in a synagogue. It may not have been the last time, but it was the last time recorded in our Bible. So he had a ministry while traveling. He had a ministry while worshiping in the synagogue and there. And he had a ministry, and this will be interesting when we get to chapter 14. If you look at chapter 14, verses 1 to 24, it's all at one dinner. Dinner conversation. Dinner conversation. 24 verses of Jesus' ministering over a meal with the other people that are there. Now, where does he get a break? He's ministering while he's traveling. He's ministering while he's in the synagogue. He's ministering while he's eating. You, you get, get kind of feel tired there, don't you? It's a, but it's a very ongoing thing. It's a very intense thing. The sheer intensity of it is... Uh, it's non-stop, traveling, worshiping, eating, with very little intermission. My first exposure to Chinese ministry was when I was in seminary my senior year, and my friend Ralph Smith, who's been a missionary in Japan for 40-some years, his wife, I introduced her to him. She's Chinese, but raised in Japan. But we had about... 20 Chinese kids come down from University of Michigan to our seminary in, in northern Indiana. And we had a Bible conference with them in our trailer. And we jammed it out with about 20, 20 Chinese students. And they were there the whole weekend. But the ministry happened not just when the class was in. The ministry was happening when we were eating. When first time I ever had tomatoes and eggs was with Chinese people. I never knew you could do that. And so uh, we, we, were, we were ministering while we were eating. We were ministering while we were uh, uh, in the trailer. We were ministering every, the whole time we were together. Because they were only there for a weekend, so we just jammed it. And a lot of them were brand new Christians, and it, it uh, was a wonderful, wonderful experience for us. But it was intense. Because there was no break. And Jesus, the, the implication you get here is a great intensity that's going on. And uh, so may God help us to appreciate our blessed Lord and how busy he was for the good of mankind. Now, as we come to this particular section and prepare ourselves for the table of the Lord, there's some things I want to point out to us. Why should we be so intense? Why should we be so urgent? Why should we redeem the time because the days are evil, as Paul puts it? Why should it concern us that our lives are poured out in ministry to people who need us? Uh, and uh, just what is it that we need to grasp in our minds about why that ministry is necessary? Number one. We all need to clearly grasp the deep depravity and eternal danger of mankind in a fallen world. Every generation has to relearn that. Most of the political errors 
that are being made in our country now is a failure to recognize the man's fallen. And many of these spiritual errors are the same. Has to be relearned every generation. Now verses 1 to 5, that great passage uh, of 1 to 5 where the people report the tragedy of the Galileans whose blood Governor Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. What an awful thing. They are coming to town to worship. Galilee's in the north. Jerusalem where the temple is is in the south. They travel all the way there and they're coming to offer sacrifice. And Pilate, in total disregard to any kind of decorum at all, decides to kill a bunch of them. Now it's not recorded anywhere else in the Bible where this happened, but Pilate had a sadistic streak. Do you know any political people that of our day that have sadistic streaks? Have things changed much? He not only killed them, he killed them while they were worshiping, so that right when their, their offerings were being offered, their, their blood is mingled with the animal blood that they were offering. Very, very, very uh, uh, shameful. Shameful, irreverent to everything that was going on. Would have been bad anyway, but especially bad there and people can get very irreverent you know if you're going to kill somebody don't do it in the church <laughs> don't do it during worship service uh, but you know people are, uh, who, who don't fear God uh, don't even think about the, the, the wickedness of it uh, is accelerated in the way that it's done now, the Lord Jesus gave a very unexpected answer to this. When he's told the news by the Galileans, they didn't have CNN and Fox News, but they had, you know, word of mouth. And this, was, this just went over. It must have just recently happened. Pilate was only governor 10 years. But that would be the 10 years Jesus was there. And... Um, Jesus really nailed it in his answer. We live in a fallen world where atrocities and tragedies take place. This is not the Garden of Eden. This is not an unfallen world. This is not that. There were no atrocities or tragedies in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve fell. No death, no suffering, none of that. This is not the world as God made it. It's the world as sin made it. And we've all heard people say, well, why are bad things happen to good people? Well, where are these good people? Are there any good people? In this fallen world? There were two good people in the garden, and they fell. God created man upright, but they've sought out many inventions. So everybody you know, everybody I know, they may be good in our eyes, and we may be good in our own eyes, but we're still fallen. We might be better than other people. I'm, you know, I think most of us would say, uh, most of us are a little better than, than uh, some of the politicians we see doing wicked things in the world and all the things that happen. But, but, we're still fallen. And so Jesus points out that there's no such thing as bad things happening to good people because there's no good people for bad things to happen to. <laughs> That's the picture. We're all fallen. We're all broken. 
We're all dirty, not just broken dirty. And bad things do happen to fallen people. We're all exiles from the Garden of Eden. We're all refugees from the fall. There is such a thing as sin and there is such a thing as perishing. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing here. And when something bad happens, people say, well, why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Or if there's a good God, why do these things happen? That's the kind of stuff people they always jump on God's case, as if God is responsible for everything. And their immediate go-to position is God is bad because this happened rather than men are bad. And that's why this happens. <laughs> why can't we just get the obvious? But we don't. We live in a fallen world in the midst of fallen people. And it's good for us to recognize that. Now, if you don't believe the Bible's true, I can tell you how to disprove the Bible. Seriously. Just don't sin for one day. <laughs> and don't die. If you do those two things, you've disproved the Bible. Well, I guarantee you, you're not going to be able to do that. I can't get through one morning without sinning. Even though I'm saved. So, uh, may God help us to just get a grasp on reality here. And one of the reasons I believe the Bible is true is that it fits reality. It's not a fantasy. It's, reality. it's a reality check on man's fantasies about himself and about life. And Jesus is pointing these first verses is these people that had this happen to them, the Galileans that had their blood mingled with their sacrifices, they were killed, uh, slaughtered, and the 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, they're not worse than you, they're the same as you. <coughs> There's no guarantees you're going to die in your bed when you're an old man. We could leave this planet any, minute, any moment. We're fallen. So the Bible corrects a faulty view of life. If the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. We, we aren't in control how long we stay. We're not in control of any of those things. By the way, that Tower of Siloam, nobody knows exactly where that was. But some of you may have heard of the Tunnel of Siloam. The Tunnel of Siloam is what's known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. And my family's been there. Andrea went through it. King Hezekiah built that about 700 years before this. And his name's even on it. And they've got a plaque that was in it that they found and it's in Turkey, and Turkey has just said they're going to send it back to Israel. It's amazing. I mean, just talk this week. Because it's been in a museum in Turkey. Marvelous confirmation of the historicity of the Old Testament. Because King Hezekiah built that tunnel, engineered that thing, because they were afraid the Assyrians would attack, and they needed a water supply. So the Tower of Siloam is probably somewhere near where the tunnel of Siloam was. And that's right smack in the southern part of the city. So the whole point was to bring it in. So 
interesting. Apparently there was some tower and uh, it fell over on people. Killed 18. So Jesus added to the tragedies, this, uh, the atrocities, this tragedy. And when someone dies a death like that, it doesn't mean they're worse than you. God got them. He must have done something bad because God struck them dead. They got hit by lightning. There are a lot of good people get hit by lightning. It has nothing to do with anything. We're fallen. And Uh, now there are people that are worse than other people that's you know Jesus even taught that in other places Uh, uh, but uh, this is not what he's talking about here so look in verse 2 suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things I tell you nay but except you repent you all likewise perish and those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, think ye they were sinners above all men that were dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. What does perish mean? Well, it could mean 70 A.D., because that was coming up, right? When the Romans were going to destroy the Jewish temple and crucified a million Jews and took them and scattered them. It could mean perish in the sense of dying. But repentance can't keep us from dying. Right? She says, except you repent, you all likewise perish. So does that mean if we all repent, we won't die since we repent? Uh, Perish can refer, the word that's translated here, perish, can refer to physically dying the disciples in Luke 18, 8, 24 said, Lord, don't you care that we perish? They meant drowned. In Luke 13, 33, Jesus said, talked about, it's not, not going to happen that a prophet perishes out of Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem. That means die. In Luke 17, 27, speaking of Noah's flood, uh, it came and destroyed them all. They all perished in the flood. That's physical death. It could refer to physical death that was going to happen to an awful lot of Jews in 70 A.D. I personally don't believe that. The word perish has many terms. To lose utterly, lost people are, are perishing people. It can be destroyed utterly. It can mean to be lost. The Son of Man come and seek and save those that are perishing. It can also mean eternal judgment. I, I lean towards that here. In Luke 4, 34, the demon said, Have you come to destroy us before our time? Before the time, destroy is the word perish. Now, demons don't die, so it's not dealing with physical death. They mean come under the judgment of God for their sins. And it's the same word in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the same word of 1 Corinthians 1.18 uh, where, uh, where it talks about perishing. Where it talks about perishing. Uh, the, the gospel's foolish to those that are perishing. They're in the very process of perishing. And uh, many other places. 1 Corinthians 15.18, 2 Thessalonians 2.10. So I believe the perishing here is is eternal perishing. R.T. France said the physical fate of this 
particular group acts as a symbol of the spiritual fate of unregenerate, unrepentant sinners. Second point, we need to be crystal clear that people's thinking is off, not just their living. People's living is off because their thinking is off. Many of us parents worry about our kids in moral failure. Oh, if I send them to OU, they'll get into moral failure. Well, that is a probability. I went to OU and I had plenty of moral failures. But uh, as a young person, and so did just about everybody else, and young people fail morally in various different ways. But what about metaphysical failure? Do we think about that kind of temptation? What about wrong way of thinking? What about the wrong way of looking at life? Because if you buy into a worldview that is faulty, you will live faulty and be consistent with your worldview. And I did that. In fact, I did more of that than the other. And so people's thinking can be off, not just their living. And so in verse 2, Jesus said, do you suppose or do you think? In verse 4, do you think? Wrong thinking. He was correcting wrong thinking. By these first five verses. And he does the same thing in 1240. Uh, Be ye therefore ready for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Again, wrong thinking in verse 15. Suppose or think ye that I am come to give peace on the earth? I tell you, nay, division. Wrong thinking. Remember Paul said in Acts chapter 26, 9, I thought within myself to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. Wrong thinking. So, uh, I remember sitting in classrooms and hearing goofy stuff as a government major and in and, and philosophy class, and it was wrong thinking. And I didn't have enough biblical understanding to sift it. I became intellectually schizophrenic in that I was trying to hold Christianity and some of these other crazy things I was hearing at the same time. I was engaging in faulty thinking. And I didn't get into all, all the moral, immoral stuff other people did. But my thinking was way out. So the Lord Jesus here is dealing with wrong thinking. Not just wrong living because wrong thinking will produce wrong living. And if you're not living right, it's probably because you're not thinking right. And maybe you've been listening to the wrong people. And that's the very nature of the fall of man. Adam and Eve were listening to God and they were thinking God's thoughts after him in the garden. And then the serpent produced another way of living. And they started thinking the way he wanted them to think. And they fell. You don't need God. There's no real bad consequences for eating of this tree. There's no punishment for what God calls sin. You're better off without God or the Bible. You're better off, there was no Bible then, but you know they had a couple verses. You're better off not living under God's revealed word. 
Make your own decisions of right and wrong. He's still telling that same lie because it still works. So Jesus, in, in, in verses 1 to 5, he's correcting wrong thinking when he says, suppose ye, it's, it, the Greek word is think. Now what's the way out of wrong thinking? Well, there is a way out. Uh, and the way out is repentance. What, is, what does the Greek word repentance mean? It's meta noeo. Noeo is the word that comes from nous. Nous is the Greek word for your mind. Meta noeo is to have a change of mind. And many people think repentance is a change of behavior, but repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. The, the root of it is a change in the way you think about things. There is a fruit of it. You bring forth fruits that are worthy of repentance, like John the Baptist said, and all of that. And the, the word repentance fills the New Testament. It fills, it fills the Gospel of Luke. Luke 3, 3 and 8. Luke 10, verse 13 and 32. Luke 15, 7 and 10. Luke 24, 45, repentance and forgiveness of sins be preached in, uh, beginning in Jerusalem. It fills the book of Acts, doesn't it? And so what's interesting, let's come back to this a moment. If you look at the Greek tenses, there's some interesting things going on here in verse 3 and verse 5. I tell you, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. There, it's a second person plural present tense of metanoeo, and it refers to continual action. Present tense, Greek tenses have the idea of kinds of action. And a present tense is, is generally emphasizes a, a, an ongoing action. So here he's talking about a lifestyle of repentance in verse 3. Because Christians repent every day of their life of something, or you should. And that's exactly what Jesus told the people who are already saved in Revelation 2 and 3. Repent. So over and over again, a born-again person has said, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have done that. Or I should have done this and I didn't do it. Forgive me, Lord. I changed my mind about that. I want not to do that again. And there is a contrition that comes after repentance, but there is a change of lifestyle. But the, the, the root of it is a change of mind. And then in verse 5, he, instead of using a present tense, it doesn't come out in English, it's an aorist tense. Second person plural, aorist. And an aorist tense is not like a line, continual action, it's like a dot. And it says, a point in time, I tell you, except you repent, you all likewise perish. You can't get in a lifestyle of repentance if you don't begin with a moment of repentance. And that moment of repentance is a moment of salvation, 
Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe the gospel. And Paul talked about repentance of God and faith towards Jesus Christ. It's the flip side of faith. It's like a coin. It's got two sides. Now the main word for salvation is faith or believe. But repentance is part of saving faith. And so that's the picture here. Um, Leon Morris said, Repentance is both a once-for-all thing that shapes the whole subsequent course of life and a day-to-day -day affair that keeps putting sin away. So it's not like we get saved and lost, saved and lost, saved and lost. Some people teach that. Every time you sin, you lose your salvation. I couldn't keep... <laughs> I couldn't keep my salvation for three seconds. <laughs> I lose everything. I'm sure I'd lose my salvation. I can lose my keys without sinning. I can lose my wallet without sinning. I can lose a lot of things without sinning. But I will definitely sin and lose my salvation if you can lose it. The proper teaching of the Bible is, yes, you'll, you'll lose it except God keeps you from it lost but there has to be a, a lifestyle of repentance that follows the initial act of repentance Philip Henry you may not know about Philip Henry Philip Henry was the father of Matthew Henry the famous Bible commentator back in the 1600s that has a big set of Philip Henry said this some people do not like to hear much about repentance. That was 300 years ago. They didn't like it then. They still don't like it now. Some people do not like to hear much about repentance. But I think it's so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I should desire to die preaching repentance. And if I should die out of the pulpit, I should die practicing it. <laughs> Pretty good quote. Now don't get drunk with repentance. I mean, some people think that's the only thing in the Bible and that's all they want to talk about. That'll cure everything. No, the Bible puts the emphasis on faith. But the change of mind is part of saving faith. And it's important to know that. The main word is faith. So that's, that's very important uh, to grasp this point. We need to realize there's only one way out of this dangerous situation of perishing, and that's what? Repent. <laughs> and to believe the gospel. And then have a lifestyle of repentance that follows that. Fourth, we need to remember there's only a limited time for this to happen. There's only a limited time for this to happen. If you know you've got a limited time to make something happen, you get, get after it, right? Uh, the, the, the time change just changed. Some of you may got tricked by that. And you look at the clock and you say, I've only got 10 minutes to get ready. Well, that you don't have a long shower then, do you? If you want to sing at church, you've got to stop singing in the shower and get done and get... get Get dressed. You might have to miss breakfast. I've only got a limited time to get ready. So I have to be serious about getting ready. And what Jesus is teaching here is, in verses 6 to 9, this whole parable of the fig tree in the vineyard, we looked at a little bit last time, 
He spoke also this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came and sought fruit on it and found none. And he said to the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And by the way, it usually takes fig trees, I'm told, three years to bear. You don't get fruit right away. Three years was the right time. The third year it should have borne. But I'm finding nothing. Cut it down. He cumbers up the ground. It's taking stuff out of the soil. It's, it's not giving him anything. And he answered and said, Lord, let it alone this year. Give it one extra year it doesn't deserve. And I'll work real hard. I'll dig, I'll loose that soil, and I'll fertilize it. And it'll bear fruit. Well, but if it doesn't, you can cut it down. So we have to remember there's a limited time for this repentance to happen. This is what this parable is about, repentance. There's a limited time. Nobody knows how long their time is. Fifth, there are people who need our immediate attention who've been suffering long under satanic bondage. Some of that bondage is lies that keep people bent over. They're locked into lies. They cannot live the life a human being should live. This poor woman had a condition in her back where her vertebrae were fused. And we know those kind of things can happen naturally, but in this case, it was demonically caused. She was not demon-possessed. That's not what the text says. It's not what the text says. Demons can bother you even if they're not possessing you. She was demon-oppressed in the sense that she had a physical affliction that wasn't normally caused by arthritis or some other problem. It was caused by Satan. He bent her over and he kept her there, hobbled like an animal, looking at she couldn't look up. Remember, Paul had a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet him. So just because the demon's involved doesn't mean she isn't saved. Job, look what devil did to Job. He beat up on him pretty hard in chapter 2 of the book of Job. And Peter talked about Jesus healing all those who are oppressed to the devil. Not all physical ailments are because of Satan, but some of them are because demons like to hurt people. They're sadistic. They can't resist. And that woman had gone to her grave with that condition. The demon was very pleased to keep her there until Jesus showed up. I've thought about the math on this. If she was bound 18 years, that means when Jesus was a teenager in his father's carpenter shop, all of a sudden this woman had this problem. And Spurgeon said for 18 long years, each year having 12 dreary months, each month dragging like a chain behind her. Long time. Now in Luke 10 to 17, Jesus stops his public teaching to deal with this woman. Often Jesus is interrupted by others what questions and this and that he interrupts his own teaching to do this as he's scanning the people that are there this woman comes in and i don't believe she came there because she heard jesus was coming she didn't make a noise she everybody accepted her was just one other person that comes all the time she was a regular goer to the synagogue she was regular in her time 
meeting God. Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. That means she's saved. Just like Zacchaeus, he calls a son of Abraham. She, she had saving faith. She was not a lost woman. She's not a demon-possessed woman. She was a saved woman, but she was bound physically by not just demons, Satan himself. But she wasn't the only one bound that day. There were the synagogue leader and others who sympathized with him who were bound with bad theology. And that's why cults exist. And that's why false Christianity exists. To bind people. And that's worse than what she had. I would rather be bent over the rest of my life than be locked into some cult that would tyrannize my mind. And then the people, unfortunately, who were under this kind of religious leadership were bound culture and intellectually because that's all they were hearing in the synagogue. So Jesus' work was a wonderful thing. And there are people who need our immediate attention. They've suffered long enough. And when we see them, we should be drawn to them. Just like Jesus was drawn to this woman. I'm going to just read the text. We don't have time to do much more. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. Who was bowed together and could no way lift herself up. And when he saw her, he called her to him and said, Woman, you're loosed from thy infirmity. Remember, it says he's teaching in verse 10. He interrupts the teaching and asked this woman to come forward. He wasn't trying to heal, hide the healing. It was done in front of everybody. It was done in front of people who wouldn't like it. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. He, somebody called him a chicken heart. <laughs> he wouldn't face Jesus directly. He said, he acted like the people were wrong for coming. The coming the other day is not the Sabbath. But he was really mad at Jesus. The ruler of the synagogue with indignation answered because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said to the people, there are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Beware of people who misquote the Bible, right? He quoted the verse right, but he misapplied it. The Lord then answered and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? Rabbis taught that was okay. You can loose an animal. You don't want them tied up all day. That wasn't breaking the Sabbath. They had a bunch of picayune rules for that. You can't hold the bucket when you water them. But, but they, they said that was okay. Loosing animals is okay, but you can't loose a woman that's bound. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, lo, these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things done by him. Okay, number six. Not God loves one-on-one -on -one work. Don't be so big you can't do little things. I can't teach a Bible class. Only one person comes. Thank God for the one person. I've taught an awful lot of Bible classes where there's one person or two people or three people. Dozens of them. It 
if you have to have a big crowd, there's something wrong with you. And I've had the privilege of big crowds sometimes in my ministry. But that's not the point. This one-on-one -on -one people work is what Jesus was involved in here. Broken people, humble people, in humble places. Doing humble work in humble places is the greatest work going on today. You don't have to make the news. You can have a ministry that's silent like leaven or little like a mustard seed. Many people, several people have mentioned this. They overinterpret these parables that are at the end here. He's not, he, it, we want to get more out of it than we should. He's just saying God loves to do little things and make big things come out of it. Kingdom work. Nothing's more important even if it's one-on-one. -on -one. There'll be a victory. It's quiet and yet inevitable like yeast. And so may God help us to see that. Making crooked people straight, crooked in their thinking, crooked in their living. Unbind those bound by Satan. One last point. Just make this very quickly. We see here in this section how Jesus spent his Sabbath day ministering to others on that day who were resting from their labors. He used it to be busy, and that was supposed to be a day of rest. Now, if that was true for the Sabbath day, what do you think the Lord Jesus would do on Sunday? Some people confuse the Sabbath, which is the seventh day, with Sunday, which is the first day. And the Sabbath is a, is a day of rest, celebrating God's creation. And the Sunday is the Lord's day. It's celebrating his resurrection. People confuse that. They call Sunday the Sabbath and all that stuff. Well, how did Jesus spend the Lord's day? Huh. We know. You turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, what happened after that? He saw Jesus in heaven, Revelation chapter 1. And Jesus was directing him to the seven churches in Asia. Guess what Jesus was doing on the Lord's day? He was ministering to John so John could minister to the seven churches. There he is working again. And he even predicted his second coming when Satan himself would be bound. haven't got time to teach all that. May the Lord Jesus work this Lord's day as we think about his ministry here. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, he is our Savior. We can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, the Lord's Supper should preach to you maybe better than my sermon can. Because the bread represents his body, the body of the God-man that was broken for you. And the cup represents his blood that was shed for you. The Bible says there's life in the blood. And I've given it 
for you on the altar to be an atonement for your souls. That was Old Testament, but it's a picture of what Jesus would do later. It's the whole story of the Bible. Sins have to be paid for. God paid for it. That we can be legally forgiven. It's a wonderful thing. And it's a foolish thing to just try to figure out uh, who's worse than others. Could any of us just in this crowd say, who's the worst person here? If I had to guess, I'd probably say me. But I like what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, we do not have the calculus that enables us to always apply blame in that way. We, we could, we, if our life depended on us, we couldn't say who is the worst person here. No point in comparing ourselves with ourselves. Those that do that, Paul says, are not wise. And that, that's a losing proposition. And may God help us to just, all right, we're all sinners. We've all failed, every one of us, some more than others, but we're all in the same situation. There's only one way out. It's Jesus Christ and faith in him, repentance, and having a change of mind about who he is and what the Bible is and about my life and what it is, seeing it from God's perspective, He's the Savior. I can't save myself. And when we do that, we get true mobility. We begin to move. We begin to live. So may God use the Lord's Supper to speak to your heart today. We pass the bread. We pass the cup. You do not have to be a member of Athens Bible Church to take the Lord's Supper. We have open communion here. But we ask if you're not yet a Christian you just let it pass by or if you have some sin that's dealt you haven't been dealt with in repentance in your life you may still be a Christian but you just need more time to deal with it just let it pass by we've all had to do that and so we're not going to judge you the Bible says let a man judge himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup and what that means is uh, if there are things that we can get right on this is a good time to do it. Lord, I've blown it today. I've blown it this week. I confess that. I thank you Jesus died for me and rose again. You can do that before the bread gets to you and the cup. But that's all your business with God. That's not ours. And we're glad you're all here. And I remember as a young person, I wasn't a Christian. I was raised in a Christian home. The bread went by. I couldn't take it. My parents told me why. That was good for me. I felt on the outside. I needed to feel on the outside. I needed to feel not included. And the cup went by. And I, that spoke to me more than the preacher's sermon. You know, I don't remember the sermons in my youth, but I remember not being able to eat the bread in the cup. It was good for me. So this is to be a soul-searching time for all of us, those that are saved. And by the taking it, we're not saying, oh, I'm better than other people. No, we are admitting we're sinners and we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. And we're admitting it publicly. Father, thank you for the bread and the cup as we come this, this morning. Thank you for our Savior who loves us more than we love ourselves, who loves us more than we'll ever know this side of heaven or ever know the next, even in the next life, in the ages to come, you're going to show the riches of your grace we'll never learn it all 
we'll never know it all. We ask, Father, that you bless this service as we take the bread and the cup. For the glory of our blessed Savior, and for the good of each one here today, Christian and non-Christian, accomplish your purposes as we wait on you. Amen.